to the Sex Within Marriage podcast. My name is JD, and I blog over at uncoveringintimacy.com about everything marriage-related. Today, we're going to be tackling uh, part two of our anonymous questions from 2019. Uh, for those who are new to this podcast, we have a page called uh, Have a Question over on our blog. You can find it in the menu easily. And there you can find uh, yeah, a page where you can submit any and all anonymous questions about marriage, sex, relationships, uh, theology, whatever. And I will do my best to answer them both on the blog and on the podcast. First, I wanted to give a quick shout out to all of our supporters uh, on Patreon or on PayPal who helped push us over our first support goal. Our monthly expenses for the blog, podcast, and everything else related to this ministry are now supported thanks to you. As a result, I'm committing to at least doing one podcast a month, as I said I would if we hit that goal. So far, I'm managing to keep up with that this year, though it's only been the third month, but but that's the plan. Uh, for those of you who would like to support us and gain access to our private forum, you can check out our support page, uh, again, on the website, or you just go to uncoveringintimacy.com slash donate for more information. And for those who aren't interested, well, uh, you could just say thanks to all those who are keeping us going uh, for your benefit. Here's what one of them shared recently in our forum. They wrote, Your blog has helped my husband and I immensely in just the last couple of months. We've been exploring more, gotten better at communication and understanding, and been having sex a lot more often. The culture in our North American churches and Christian families is often so harmful when it comes to the topic of sex. We don't usually talk about it, and the impression is given that sex is bad and shouldn't be talked about. I personally grew up with so much shame about my sexuality. You are doing such good work talking about the things so many don't want to talk about and providing a safe place to ask questions people are afraid and ashamed to ask. Your ministry needs our support, and I'm happy that we can help. So with that said, uh, on to the questions. So I tried to group all these questions uh, sort of into as many categories as I could. Uh, The next section of them deal with anal sex. So if uh, you don't want to hear about that, just fast forward a bit. Uh, The last section is going to be more about uh, orgasms in general. So the first question we have is, I'm open to trying anal sex if it's not specifically forbidden in the Bible for heterosexual married couples. However, my husband is very opposed to it. So really there's no problem. I'm happy not to try it. But it bothers me that I'm not sure whether it's sinful or not. My husband says it's so obviously depraved that it wasn't widely practiced among heterosexual couples until very recently when homosexuality became en vogue. And that's why the Bible doesn't specifically forbid it for heterosexual couples, but only for homosexual couples. Do you have any evidence to the contrary? So yes, uh, there's actually quite a bit of evidence to the contrary. One is uh, they found a bunch of clay pots from the Moshe people, or the Moshe or Moke, I'm not quite sure how it's pronounced. Anyways, these people in Peru, uh, and they made these pots around between 100 AD and 800 AD. Uh, researchers found some 10,000 clay pots. Uh, about 500 of them depict sexual acts explicitly. So what they were surprised, like the entire community of researchers on this, they were shocked by how many of them uh, explicitly just show anal sex. And it caused quite a bit of a stir in the archaeology community. So one theory for the amount of anal sex in their culture uh, drawn from these art pieces was the belief that uh, semen ejaculated into the rectum somehow produced more milk for breastfeeding mothers. Uh, I don't know why they believe this. We don't. We don't have writings. We just. Uh, it seems 
apparently very clear from the art that these two things were connected. As well, Greek culture is well known for heterosexual anal sex. It's depicted in a lot of their art. And while people tend to think that the Greeks were usually only having anal sex with young boys, their cultural stance on genders makes that a little difficult to believe that it was a pretty common practice. You see, receiving anal sex uh, was considered feminizing in their culture, and the Greeks didn't have much respect for women. Women were considered... um, basically property. They were good for breeding and not much else. Women weren't educated or trained to do anything besides run the household, uh, which the men weren't interested in. So women were for sex and men were for discussion, friendships, and sometimes intimate relationships. As a result, sometimes men would take young boys as lovers because taking another man as a lover would lower the status of that man, and nobody wanted to do that. Uh, Boys who had not yet started growing a beard, it seemed like the loss of status in this relationship uh, would be less. However, uh, still, like receiving penetration was still considered more effeminizing, causing a massive drop in status. So some papers state that the Greeks saw engaging in anal sex with someone as gross misconduct, like with another man or even a boy. Uh, While that seems to have happened occasionally, the going theory seems to be that anal sex was more common between men and women who basically had no status to lose. No one cared if uh, a woman's husband mistreated her. And by mistreated, I mean had anal sex with her, thus dropping her status because nobody cared about the woman's status. Uh, now, there's plenty of art to support uh, heteroanal sex in Greek culture as well. So, now the Greek era predates the Roman era, era, which is when the New Testament was written. So, to say that the New Testament writers had no knowledge of anal sex seems like a stretch. But it seems like the church had been against anal sex from very early on. We even see from the Canons of Theodore, which is about 700 AD, that there was a penance listed for sodomy or anal sex. You were to fast for seven years. Now, those who take that as proof that you shouldn't engage in anal sex, you should also be aware that the penance for oral sex was to rest the rest of your life. That was apparently even worse than anal sex. Likewise, if you had sex on Sunday, or if you had sex and it didn't result in a child, then your penance would be to fast for the next 10 years for the first offense, and then seven years for each subsequent one. Now, those are just some things I could find out about human anal sex in history. Turns out that researchers have cataloged over 1,500 species of animals that also engage in anal sex, many of them heterosexual anal sex. I'm not sure if that's relevant to this discussion, but it does um, throw some doubt into the kind of unnaturalness of it. Of course, the prevalence of homosexual anal sex in the animal kingdom causes confusion of the subject even more, but thankfully we have verses specifically talking about homosexual sex to clear that up. Uh, One other interesting tidbit I came across in my research, uh, the first rectal dilator was patented in 1892, and they were used to treat uh, constipation, hemorrhoids, and insanity. As well, there are many sexual practices that are forbidden in the Bible, and they speak of uh, more than once that have never really been common. So whether or not the Bible speaks on a topic is not necessarily an indication of how common it is in daily practice. All right, next question is, this is a question in regards to anal sex between a husband and a wife. Why should we assume that just because something feels pleasurable or because there are lots of nerve endings in a particular area of the body, that this is evidence that it is good and right to engage in activities that stimulates those nerve endings. There are a lot of things in life that are pleasurable that aren't necessarily good and right. 
and many that are very, very clearly sinful. I agree. I don't think you should assume just because something is pleasurable that it's good or right. Uh, I don't think you should assume it's wrong merely because someone told you it was either. As I said, and I will continue to say, I see no biblical or moral cause not to have anal sex. That doesn't mean you have to have it, have to want it, or even have to think it's a good thing. If you don't want to, don't do it. It's as simple as that. However, what I'm hoping you're seeing from uh, these questions is there are a lot of people who have questions about it. There are a lot of people shown in our service that are engaging in it, aren't seeing any negative effects. Uh, I had somebody this week answer that it's their primary method of birth control. So they've been having pretty much anal sex for the last 20 some odd years because they don't like condoms, hormonal birth controls drive them insane, uh, or whatever. So, while that's, I would say, unusual, I, don't, I can't find a reason to say it's wrong. And I've yet to have anyone actually come up with a reason to tell me it's wrong other than just, oh, the Bible said so, but they can't give me a verse. Or to say, oh, it's it's not it's wrong for this reason, but they can't back up their reason. Um, it, it generally just has to do with people's opinions. And I have trouble when people's opinions are informing their decision about whether something is morally right or wrong. Because then they're making value judgments about what other people are doing purely on their opinion and on their own personal preferences. All right, next question is, are some very well-endowed men simply too large for anal? My husband and I tried it once once a long time ago and concluded he was simply too big. Is this a wrong assumption? Maybe we just needed to go more slowly or or use more lube. So a couple of women in our supporters group uh, answered this by saying exactly what you've already thought of. Uh, Go very slow, use a ton of lube. Ultimately, the anus is very elastic if you go slow. If it's hurting, then you're either going too fast or not using enough lube or both. And for those who are going to point to this and go, look, see, it's proof that anal sex is wrong. Uh, I get questions about this about vaginal sex, too. Um, There isn't the question about, oh, does that mean vaginal sex is wrong then? No, but they're still having the same problems, the same pains. Uh, If if the guy is very well endowed, it's going to cause a problem. It doesn't matter where you stick it. That That doesn't mean it's wrong or that you have to give up. It just means that, hey, you have to go a little bit more slowly. All right, next question is about prostate massage. Is prostate massage with a handheld dildo sinful? This would be done by my wife, but not with a strap-on. Different from pegging. Uh, I don't see why it would be. Uh, I'm not sure what else to say about that. Uh, I have a whole article on pegging. If you want to refer back to that, it's basically the same reason. I mean, I don't see a difference if she's holding it in her hand or is using a harness. I mean, it's all basically the same thing. It just has a different term. All right, next question is on felching. They basically just asked, is felching okay? So for those who don't know, and I'm sorry for teaching you this, uh, felching, according to Wikipedia, is uh, when semen or other fluids are sucked from the anus. Okay, so is it okay? And I put okay in quotes. There's no biblical verse speaking directly against it, uh, but the problem I'd have with this is that semen would probably also come with fecal matter. And now, just so you kind of understand the biology here, you have two sphincters in your anus. One is you can control consciously, uh, that's the one closest to the exterior, and the other one that's further in, you can't. Uh, When you have anal sex, uh, you're generally pushing beyond 
like past both sphincters. So then if you are trying to yeah, suck out fluid from there that's been deposited past that second sphincter, that's where fecal matter is stored kind of more long-term. Uh, between that first and second sphincters, from my understanding, I'm not a biologist, so uh, someone correct me if I'm wrong, uh, between the first and second, you usually don't have a lot of fecal matter there uh, unless you're like, that's when you get that feeling like, oh, I have to go to that bathroom. That's when that more internal uh, sphincter kind of lets go. Uh, that's what gives you that feeling like, oh, I have to go. So uh, in that way, like by contrast, rimming is you're not going to get past that second sphincter. Your tongue isn't long enough, most likely. So you're generally not going to be in contact with as I'm going to say as much fecal matter. Of course, uh, people always say, well, there's of course still bacteria involved and there's a whole argument there, but we're not dealing with that in this question. So uh, short answer is, I'd say felching is not something I'd personally consider safe. Uh, I think he, you have a much higher risk of issues. All right, so now on to our orgasm questions. So this next question is, I'm wondering if you have, I'm wondering if you've ever done a survey on what factors affect women's ability to orgasm at all or during intercourse. This is a very interesting topic to me. Uh, especially in the prevalence of dysfunction in this area. For example, how does a history of premarital sex, multiple sex partners, or solo masturbation affect a woman's ability to orgasm at all or during intercourse? Does previous or current use of hormonal birth control decrease the ability to orgasm during sex, or in general, in general, are women more likely to orgasm the longer they've been married, or does increasing age outweigh this factor? What about if they've had a child? What if they've had multiple children? Do they become more or less orgasmic during pregnancy? I've experienced both in separate pregnancies. Maybe it's out there, but I've seen very little research into this subject. Anyways, just an idea I thought I'd throw out for a survey. I'd be interested to know if women with only one sexual partner, their husband, who didn't have premarital sex, who have never masturbated by themselves, and who have been faithful in a monogamous relationship for a while, are having the best sex. Wow, that is a big, long question. Uh, I don't have all this in one giant survey, um, but I'll add it to the list. So stay tuned on that. I will say anecdotally, I do know a few of these things uh, based on some of the surveys we've done and research that I've read. Uh, women do tend to have better sex as they get older. Uh and it's generally not thought that it's because hormones are changing or it's changes in their body, but more, it seems to be mostly tied to their comfort level with their own body. As they get older, they kind of, yeah, they just get more comfortable uh, at, at moving the way, the way that feels good at, at asking for what they want. Uh, those who have been in relationships for longer tend to have better sex as well, um, barring any serious relationship problems. Uh, just because, well, you can communicate more about what you want. You're more comfortable asking for what you want and you have more experience. And I think a lot of these things are kind of, uh, they become kind of a balancing act. Uh, sort of like when you take almost any medication, uh, you're generally not, it's not generally simply a question of, oh, if I take this medication, will it cure this thing or resolve this symptom? It's usually, Will the side effects of the medication be less worse than the symptom I'm trying to 
to make better. And I think in a lot of these questions, you kind of have the same thing. Um, does having premarital sex make sex better? Well, you're kind of starting earlier on that path of knowing your body and being more comfortable and knowing what to ask for. However, you're also introducing a lot more baggage into what hopefully will be your final relationship, your your marriage. And so does that offset, I don't know, does being a couple years early in understanding your body and how sex feels better, is that worth all this worry about, oh, well, well, how do they compare to my previous lovers and jealousy and potential disease and all this other stuff, you know, a pregnancy that maybe you didn't want. There's a whole lot of stuff that gets thrown into there. My personal opinion, and uh, from what I see, this is how God tells us to act in the Bible, um, it's not worth it. Other people disagree. And that's kind of where we get into problems. I would argue the same thing goes for masturbation. You know, yes, you learn earlier about what you like and what you want. However, you're also training your body that, oh, I need this. I need to be the one to touch it. I need to touch it in this way, things like that. And so typically people get stuck in a pattern of, oh, this is how I orgasm. And then when they get married and sex doesn't match that, then they start to have problems. They have to either retrain or some of them never retrain. They just kind of give up and go, oh, I guess sex isn't as good. Of course, not everyone has that experience, but quite a few people do. So anecdotally, I would say the question of do they have better sex isn't the only one. You also have to look at what are the implications to the relationship moving forward. All right, next question is, can women learn to ejaculate? Uh, Is it possible for a woman to learn to ejaculate when they orgasm, or is it just something that happens? So my understanding is that it is possible to learn. In fact, I've had some people ask me to post links to their training courses on how to do it. The problem is they all include porn. Uh, So I believe there is a method. Uh, However, I don't have a solid step-by-step guide as I haven't found a Christian-friendly one to read, uh, let alone share. And I don't have the equipment of my own to test it out, and my wife was less interested in uh, learning this particular skill. Uh, however, I have seen some pretty common general processes that you might try that people have shared. Uh, the first big one is you have to be okay with it. If you don't want to ejaculate, squirt, gush, whatever you call it, then it'll be less likely that you will. Uh, there are some women who do do this and they don't want to be able to and can't stop. So I'm not going to say that, you know, that's the only thing, but it seems to help. Number two is put down a towel because some women ejaculate like cups of fluid Uh, as well. You know, it also leads to the being more comfortable with it because you're not going to completely soak and ruin your bed. Uh, Number three is have an orgasm first before trying to ejaculate. Uh, Typically, they say clitoral stimulation to an orgasm Um, just because you you seem to be, most people seem to be, need to be pretty aroused already. Uh, number four is then you stimulate the G-spot because the G-spot is sits right in front of the skin glands, I believe it is, uh, which is what we believe generates all this fluid. So, and then lastly, when you're about to have a G-spot orgasm, uh, when you're, you're just about to orgasm, a lot of women feel like uh, they feel like they're going to pee. And 
rather than trying not to pee, apparently you're supposed to kind of like push out like you're going to be. Supposedly the body has a mechanism. Uh, I know it does in men that you can't, or most men can't urinate while they ejaculate. It's just not possible. There is an actual cutoff switch because the same the same tube is being used. In fact, most guys know that if you wake up in the morning and have an erection, you usually kind of have to wait for that to calm down a bit before you can actually go to the bathroom, which can be annoying. Uh, for women, uh, it doesn't quite seem to be the same. You can still uh, pee while you're aroused. However, at that point of orgasm, apparently it, you can't really do both. However, there are conflicting uh, theories on this. So anyways, if you're interested in it, try it out. Let us know in the comments if it works. It can take some practice. Uh, it doesn't always happen the first time. And that's about the best answer I have for that. So the next question is, can kegels lead to vaginal orgasms? Uh, it's a really long question, so you can read it on the website. The very shortened uh, thing is that, hey, there's a bunch of research out there and books claiming that if you do kegels, like a lot of them, we're talking like 300 a day, um, after a few months of this, uh, I think the, the number they quoted was 12 weeks, uh, you can start having vaginal orgasms when you've never had them before. I've heard this before. Uh, I've heard it a few times from multiple different places. Uh, I own one of the books that they quoted, so I probably heard it from that. Uh, and there's been some research on this as well. However, I have also heard from people who said they tried it and it didn't work out. However, uh, yeah, there's a lot of clinical research that shows there's a very, very high correlation between doing kegels, exercises, and being able to orgasm purely from penetration. Uh, so if you are willing to take the challenge of doing 300 kegel exercises a day for 12 weeks, and you don't already orgasm from penetration alone. Try it out. Let us know. I'd, I'd love to uh, get kind of real people who answered this. Next question is, can men be multi-orgasmic? So this person asks, can guys have multi-O's before they come all the way? In brackets, they put ejaculate. Uh, yes, you can. Uh, contrary to popular belief, orgasm and ejaculation are two separate processes. They just happen to go together by default. Um, but they don't have to. You can learn to separate them. Uh, I haven't learned how to yet, uh, but one of the men in our supporters group claims to have figured it out. And basically, he used the same method as the women above. He does uh, like a 100 or more Kegel exercises a day, and he has figured out how to have an orgasm without an ejaculation, and then he can continue having sex. So, yeah, the basic process is just to do a, a ton of Kegel ex exercises. Yeah, 100 to, hundreds a day to get those muscles good and strong and gain control over them. And then just before that kind of like point of no return, you stop stimulation. Uh, supposedly, you can have an orgasm, but not ejaculate. What's more interesting is that uh, ejaculation, not orgasm, is what releases prolactin, which is is what causes uh, the refractory period in men. So you can have an orgasm without ejaculating and you can maintain an erection. Next question is, how does a woman learn to orgasm on command? So this is another question of something that we haven't personally done. However, I do know people who have, and it is possible. 
The basic breakdown of how to learn from I understand is first, uh, realize that most people believe orgasm occurs from physical stimulation, and it can, obviously, but it can also be caused purely through mental stimulation. For example, both women and men can orgasm in their sleep without any physical stimulation whatsoever. So to start trying to learn how to do this, from what I understand, is when you orgasm normally, start integrating an anchor. So anchors are things that uh, you tie to specific behaviors. For example, in the well-known story of Pavlov's dog, Pavlov set an anchor of ringing a bell every time his dog ate, and then later, when he rang this bell without any food present, the dog would expect food. In that same way, uh, a husband can set an anchor during orgasm, and after enough time, that anchor may actually become a trigger. Now, an anchor can be anything, but my understanding is that an auditory and kinesthetic anchor combined are most effective. So if you use a particular touch, like uh, touching on the shoulder, for example, combined with a phrase like orgasm now, that would be more effective than just a simple command. It's not quick, but over time, supposedly this works. Uh, Third is practice edging. Uh, Try getting the wife as close as possible to orgasm, then removing the stimulation. And then the wife should just try to push herself over the edge mentally while the husband gives the associated trigger. Again, it takes practice and a lot of time, but this is generally the method people use to learn to orgasm on command. If you ever learn to do it yourself, I'd be curious to know the methods used. Um, So if you want to share in the comment section, that'd be great. Our last question for this uh, podcast episode is about PC muscles. This person writes, often when I'm trying to climax during sex, I squeeze my PC muscles. I have to squeeze so hard that I literally push my husband's penis out of my vagina. He describes it as putting up a wall that makes it impossible for him to penetrate me. Unfortunately, it's much harder or impossible for me to climax without flexing these muscles. It's very frustrating because it makes it so I often can't climax during sex. Sometimes I do the exact same thing and it works perfectly and we end up climaxing near the same time. Other times, it psychs me out and diverts my attention so I can't quite get there. The remaining times, I turn into the wall and have to stop trying to climax. Foreplay is always adequate and then some, but I don't think, so I don't think that's the issue. Any thoughts on what's going on or what I should be doing differently? As a side note, I birth babies in only one or two pushes to my midwife's amazement. So is there a chance my PC muscles might be too well developed? I started doing kegels at one point, but quit because I was afraid I might make things worse. So, orgasm for many involves tensing up prior to a big release. Uh, However, it is possible to have orgasms in a relaxed state. I'm afraid I don't have a how-to on how to do that. I just know it is possible. Uh, If it was me, I would probably try experimenting experimenting with trying to have an orgasm in a more relaxed state together um, with a toy first. Maybe something like a womanizer, uh, which I linked to in the podcast, Um, but really anything that works for you. See if you can manage to orgasm without the big tense up first. Uh, I say try using maybe the womanizer because uh, it tends to have a really high success rate for allowing people to orgasm, even women who have never been able to orgasm before. 
So, yeah, see if you can manage without that big tense up and then see if you can do it during sex. Also, just be aware that uh, some women are reading this thinking she can orgasm during sex. That's not fair. And uh, they have simultaneous orgasms and she's complaining. Now, I don't mean to say don't complain. Just remember that these are kind of first world problems with respect to married sex. I'm all for making something great, even more amazing. Just don't get hung up on what's missing and lose sight of what you already have. And that's it for this episode. I still have another 11 questions to go, so hopefully I can fit them all into the next one. After all, March's questions are already coming in. Uh, If you have a question you'd like to see answered, check out our Have a Question page. I'll make sure to link to it in the show notes for the podcast. Uh, If you like to see them as they come in and discuss them in a safe environment, then check out our support page and see how to join our private forum. 